Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation 7. We have perhaps too much to cover today, so I will try to press on. Hopefully the microphone is working. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jared. I have greatly missed Jared and his work in the back and how he makes sure he makes it so everything goes and goes well. In your Bibles, let's study this morning, my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, Revelation 7, and we'll consider the first eight verses this morning, where we will see the 144,000 sealed of Israel. Let's pray. Father, as we have the blessing of being able to gather together and being able to have a copy of your word to look at it, to hold it in our hands, to be able to read it, and to be able to understand it. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray that you'll use your word today to make us more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday, my daughter was playing in the front yard as Rachel and I were talking with a neighbor. And at one point, my daughter approached the sidewalk, which is our boundary line. And when it became clear to me that I wasn't exactly sure she was going to observe the boundary line, I dashed to her side. Why? Well, because I care for her safety. I don't want her to be harmed by making it into the road. Well, we have come in our study in the book of Revelation to Revelation chapter 7. The book of Revelation tells quite a story about the champion, Jesus Christ, the one who has conquered death and been exalted to the Father's right hand. And one day, he will bring heaven's kingdom to earth. And according to his wisdom, he wanted us to know how that would happen so we would know how to live today. Revelation chapter 4, Act 2 began with God the Father seated on the throne and worshipped on his throne. Revelation 5 ends with the Son of God worshipped as God. The event that brought about this spontaneous worship was the Son's taking the scroll from the Father's hand. And in doing that, all judgment was given to the Son that he may be honored as the Father is honored. So in chapter 6, we find that the Son is begun to open the scroll and accomplish God's plan to establish his kingdom on the earth. And what followed were six judgments, which those on earth at the end of the chapter correctly classify as God's wrath. Now, why is God angry with those on the earth? Just the other day, I heard a child say, I don't know anyone who hasn't lost their temper except Jesus Christ. And I responded, well, you should have seen him in the temple. Because Jesus was angry when folks ditched his expectations for worship in the temple. Even so, in Revelation 6, we observe the wrath of the Lamb against those on the earth. And the truth is that God is not okay with sin. He hates sin. And he confirmed and commended that in the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 6. 
The question is, who can withstand his fierce anger? And that's how the chapter closes. Chapter 6, verse 16, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? What that means is, as 1 Thessalonians 5, 3 says, sudden destruction will come and none will escape. I'm struck by their statement for several reasons. First, Their statement is scripturally accurate. Nahum 1, 5, and 6 say this. The mountains quake before him. The mountains melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Malachi 3, 2. Who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? Or the psalmist in Psalm 76, verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 7. You, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? So what those on earth said, who were opposed to God, was very scriptural. The second reason I'm struck by this statement is is that it is the only statement of the earth dwellers in this section of the book, in Act 2. The next time that those on earth are going to be heard is in Act 3, which is later in chapter 17 through the mid-section of 21. In that next act, they are weeping over the destruction of Babylon. So after six seals of judgment, there is a pause in the drama for a united reaction of those on the earth. It's like there's a live report on earth. And those who are being interviewed have one line that they are able to speak in the entire drama. And it is one of realization of God and of the Lamb. It is a cry of utter despair. Who can stand in the great day of their wrath? Now you look across the page to chapter 7, verse 9, and it says this. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Same two reference, the throne and the Lamb, the Sovereign and the Savior. Same topic of standing before them, but a different location and a different condition. Those in Revelation 7 aren't on the earth. They're before the throne. And they're not in despair. They're rejoicing. They're rejoicing in heaven. The point is that there are some who can stand before God. This is the congregation of the righteous of Psalm 1. This is the place where the wicked will not stand. But we have to wonder, is there anyone on earth who will stand? Or is absolutely everyone on earth going to die because of the wrath of the Lamb? It's the first of the two visions in Revelation 7 that answers that question. There is a great contrast between those on earth dwelling during the time of God's wrath. Because some despair and others mustn't because of what we're about to learn this morning. It is truly the worst of times ever upon the earth, and it is in those worst of times that God is absolutely committed to caring for his people. In the worst of times, they're under his care. So let's observe this in the first three verses. Revelation 7, 1 through 3 
teaches us that Christ has a plan for the protection of his servants. Young people taking notes, this is your first point. Christ has a plan for the protection of his servants, verses 1 through 3. And we know that because John saw harmful judgments paused for God's servants. Chapter 6 recorded judgment after judgment against the earth, and more is to come with the seventh seal, but that just is paused for a moment. Judgment is going to come. And what we find in these verses, verses 1 and part of 2, is that Christ will give authority to harm in judgment. Christ is authorizing harm upon the earth. Let's read about it. Verse 1, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. So there are four angels standing, restraining the wind. Young people, have you ever tried to stop the wind? Let's try this. Can you hold your breath? I don't. You better let it out for a while. See, the thing is, you can hold your breath for a matter of seconds, but that's not very much. What's described here is something truly amazing. These have the power to hold back the winds of the entire earth. And Christ has positioned them and empowered them to accomplish his plan. These angels are causing everything on earth to be deathly still. There's no wind, no breeze, no waves, no movements of the clouds. You've watched the weather forecast. You've seen the news. And you've seen the time lapse and how weather patterns come and how there's going to be a, a low front and a high front and and this system here and that system there. And all of those patterns, all of those forecasts are a result of studying wind patterns. And on this day, the four angels will restrain the wind. And the forecast will be very different. But why? Why are they doing this? Look at verse 2, the end of the verse. It says of the four angels, the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. You see, the angels were authorized to harm the earth and the sea by manipulating the wind. And we have to ask, who, who authorized them to do that? We know that someone must have given them the power because that's what the text says. So who gave that authority to them? This is what we call a divine passive, where God is performing an action. And we saw that in chapter 6. The first rider was given a crown, the second a great sword, the fourth authority to kill a quarter of the earth. And each of those happened after the lamb opened the seal. In chapter 6, verse 11, we saw that white robes were given to the martyrs under the, auth- under the altar. And the same person who gave those white robes is the same person who promised to give the right to eat of the tree of life, who promised to give a crown of life, who promised some of the hidden manna, a white stone, authority over the nations, the morning star, and the right to sit with Christ on his throne in chapters 2 and 3. That's Jesus Christ. He authorized the four angels to harm the earth and sea because all authority has been, or all judgment has been given to Christ from the Father. 
So it is the Son, according to chapter 2, verse 23, it is Jesus Christ who will give each according to his works. It is Christ who gives a time for repentance, chapter 2, verse 21. You see, in this, Christ is gracious and he's just. And we should take comfort that he is in control. And we see that in that he is the one who is giving authority and power. Why? Because in the darkest of times, we need to know that Christ regulates the pressure. In the darkest of times, Christ regulates the pressure in our lives. It has been said that God will never give you more than you can handle. That's mostly wrong. That's because there's too much of me and too little of him in that statement. I prefer this kind of confession to God, which you can find in your hymn book on page 126. The hymn writer says, Your will cannot lead me where your grace will not keep me. Your will will not lead me where your grace will not keep me. You see, the pressures that he allows never exceed the grace that he supplies. Christ, one day, will give authority to harm and judgment. Yet, we see in verses 2 and 3 that Christ will delay that harm to seal his servants. Because another angel came to protect God's servants. Look at verses 2 and 3. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who were, had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, young people, many of you have joined your mother or father in the kitchen to make cookies or a cake, and you have enjoyed perhaps having a taste of the batter before it made its way into the oven. You've enjoyed measuring out the ingredients and mixing them in the bowl. But your mom and dad knew something. Before you got to that task, they handed you an apron. Why? Because they wanted to protect your clothes. They knew how much of a mess it can be cooking in the kitchen. So they got you an apron. And to a far greater level, God protects his servants. Christ sent an angel to delay the other four who were intent on harming the earth at the authorization of Christ, and their task, the task of this one, was to seal God's servants, and that must come first. So now we have to figure out what is the seal of the living God that is placed upon their foreheads. Well, let's figure that out right now. The seal is a mark. It is commonly made from a signet ring. Perhaps you remember the Many stories in the Bible, but one of those was the story of Daniel in the lion's den where the king set his seal on the rock that covered the den, that it not be removed. You see, a seal is something that is used by a ruler, someone of authority, and it belongs to him. A seal is something that belongs to him. And so we see here that the seal belonged to the living God. What does that mean? Well, God is the God who is there compared to the gods who aren't there. The prophet Jeremiah made this contrast with, between the lifeless idols and the living God. Jeremiah 10, 
This guy had a, a great sense of humor or something. I, I love this preaching. Jeremiah 10, 5. Their idols are like scarecrows. Great illustration. Then in contrast, he says, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. As I read that, it really seems to fit with Revelation. My daughter and I were walking home this last week from the post office, and someone recommended to us that we check out the local idol store. Now, that person told us that we could buy small stones for just a dollar. And as my daughter and I continued on our way, she said to me, you mean small stones like the ones you throw in water? I had to chuckle to myself, given all those times that we have skipped stones together on the shores of the Great Lakes. She gets it. She gets it. Some people worship stones. Other people skip them. Whether it's a stone or whether it's a job, whether it's a family, people infuse those things and many more with life and with importance as if they're God, something that deserves our time and attention and our love and affection and our worship. But those things are lifeless. In contrast, the Creator God is alive and active. And that is illustrated to us in the story of Daniel in the lion's den. That's exactly what the king Darius said. He said, Daniel, you're the one who serves the living God. Has he delivered you? Yes, he has. I was reflecting on this point of God being the living God this last week in preparation for the sermon. And and this is really something that is for our age, I believe. Because many people worship many things today. Many times not rocks and stones like they did many years ago, but many other things, ideologies, jobs, uh, sports, many, many, many things. But the thing about those is that if they don't worship them, they're not offended. Because you are the person who put life into it in the first place. If you don't worship it, you can go to the next thing and worship it, and that that, that thing's not going to be mad at you because there's no life in it. But you can't dismiss the living God and it not have repercussions. That's the difference. People might think, ah, all religions are are the same. No, because one of them has a living God whom you cannot dismiss. We need to call people to God, the true God, the living God. So we see in this verse the seal that belonged to the living God. Secondly, this is a seal that was conspicuous. It was a seal that was placed on the forehead. According to Revelation 14.1, it is the names of the Lamb and the Father. Once again, the Lamb and the Father on the same podium. It is their names that is written on the foreheads in a conspicuous place. Christianity is not a hidden or private matter. Last, we need to consider what's the nature of this seal? What what does it indicate? What are the benefits that it affords? And to determine this, we need to do a brief overview from the Scriptures, and then we'll come back to Revelation chapter 7. Seals in the Scriptures, in general, have three purposes. First, a seal can denote authenticity. 
A seal can denote authenticity. In Genesis chapter 17, God's people were given a sign to authenticate their status as God's people. We turn to the New Testament, 2 Timothy 2.19, and we see a seal of authentication as God's people. That may be a reference to write in the margin, 2 Timothy 2.19. We studied this together in men's Bible study a couple years ago. The first part of that seal is this, that the Lord knows those are his, those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. In the cross-reference to that passage, you see Numbers chapter 16, which is quite a story. Because in that story of Numbers chapter 16, God opens up the earth under those who aren't his, and he leaves standing those who are. The Lord knows who are his. Well, how do you know if you're authentically his? Well, the second part. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So we may know that we are his by our lifestyle of forsaking sin. You see, in salvation, God works in his children to cry, Create in me a clean heart, O God. That is true of you. That is the mark that you are authentically his. A seal can denote authentic, uh, authenticity. A seal can also denote ownership. Ownership. We belong to God. He owns us. These are some verses we know quite well. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. How do you feel about that? 2 Corinthians 1.22, God has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Amen. We just went over this this week in Ephesians 1, verse 13. It says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. It is the indwelling Holy Spirit of God that is God's seal of ownership upon his people. The seal is the Holy Spirit. Spirit. How do you know if you're indwelt by the Spirit? Maybe worth turning to. Because this is no small matter. Young people, want you turn to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. We're jumping into the middle of what your dad's just studied this week. And we saw in this much spoken about the Holy Spirit, but Let's look at the progress we find in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. It says this. It says, In him you also, what about you? You heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Question, have you ever heard the gospel before? Do you know what that is? Because you are not sealed with the Holy Spirit unless you have heard the gospel. Next, and you believed in him. You believed in him. You came to believe that Jesus dying in your place for your sin is the only way you may be rid of your sin and have a relationship with God. And if that's true of you, you have the Spirit of God inside you as a seal that you belong to God. question is, is that true for you? The seal can denote authenticity. It can denote ownership. And lastly, it can denote protection. A few pages forward, Ephesians 4, verse 30. 
It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see, one day judgment will come and God's seal will protect you from that day, from that judgment. Now, let's get back to Revelation 7 because we did that biblical theology of the seal so we could come back to Revelation 7 and figure out what this seal is. From the context, we know several things. We know that harm is imminent. We know that the angel who came to seal is delaying that harm. We know that, we know that those who are sealed are God's servants. They're his bond servants. They're his slaves. They already have a relationship with God. To be a servant of God was one of the favorite titles of Christ's followers. Think of the openings to books that Paul wrote or the epistle that James or Jude wrote. They called themselves servants of God. It's a title that John used of himself. It's a title that was given to the saints in Thyatira. To be a slave is to be owned by God, and to serve God is to be authentically His. Then to be sealed, then, is to be uniquely protected from His wrath. God is going to bring down wrath on others, but He is not going to bring down wrath on His own. They are sealed. God cares for them. God has not destined them for wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5. You see, in one day, some are going to be protected from the time of wrath, Revelation 3.10. That's my reference to the rapture. While others will be protected in that time of wrath because they're sealed by the living God, chapter 7, verse 3. All that to say that Christ has a plan for the protection of his servants. That's point one this morning. And that's an encouraging point. And perhaps that would be enough for us. Give us enough of a breath of fresh air that we're ready to go on and see the opening of the seventh seal, which comes up in chapter 8. But there's more that John saw. There's another vision beginning in verse 9. And Christ cares for his people is magnified by the details that we're about to learn Secondly, this morning, Christ knows those who will be sealed, verses 4 through 8. Christ knows those who will be sealed. That's the second point, young people, you're taking notes. Christ knows those who will be sealed. John heard who God's sealed servants were. That's a tongue twister, but I got it. Verse 4, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. So Christ knows the number of those who were sealed, and that those sealed were 144,000 in number. You say, where does that number come from? Well, Christ, maybe an angel. The speaker is not told to us, but we have every reason to believe that the speaker is trustworthy. Okay? Furthermore, as you young people look in your Bibles at the text, you see a long list of numbers, and you all have the capacity to add those up, and you'll come to 144,000. Simple. Math. Easy. Well, as we read through this, this really shouldn't seem strange to us. And I hope we had this point as Brother Dave read the Scriptures to us this morning. It sounded like what happens when we read through God's Word all the time throughout the year. This kind of uniform number, numbering isn't strange. Regardless the size of the tribe, we read in the book of what 
Numbers that God sent one spy from each of the tribes to spy out the promised land. We read in the book of 1 Chronicles that God chose, uh, that 24,000 of each tribe were chosen to be a part of the army. And for the ministry of the temple, 24,000 were chosen. Those are repetitive numbers that sometimes when we read the Bible can be really taxing. But what they do is they demonstrate order, they demonstrate attention that's given. And I would say in like fashion, Christ knows to the precise number who is sealed. And the uniform number indicates divine decision in that matter. So Christ knows the number. He also knows the nationality of those who will be sealed, verses 5, 6, 7, 8. Those who are sealed were of the tribes of Israel. I heard the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 of Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. So those who received the seal of the living God were all Israelites. Not all of each tribe. That is to say this, the way it's spoken shows us that there are more than 12,000 of each tribe on the earth. But of each of those tribes, 12,000 of that greater number were sealed. And that really just seems quite plain and simple. But some people think it's symbolic because they believe this book is apocalyptic. Therefore, what it says, it doesn't mean. It means something different than what it says. Now, as a gospel preacher, that is not a fun hermeneutic to think about. Nor to have as I come to preach a passage like Revelation. The premise is flawed for for many reasons, but it usually demonstrates how a well-meaning, good Christian person may force his theological system upon a text of Scripture that just doesn't fit. And in many Christian colleges and seminaries today, it is popular to believe that God is done with Israel. There is no future for Israel. Therefore, when the text reads, the sons of Israel, it means the church. Did a YouTube study or search on this briefly last night. The top 10 for sure all had this understanding, it seemed. The sons of Israel means the church. It says sons of Israel. It doesn't mean that. It means the church. Question is, why symbolize the church? John knows how to spell the word. He's used it many times in the first uh, few chapters. Why would he shift from an open reference to the church to a veiled reference here? Again and again and again, Christ said to the church of Ephesus, to the church of Pergamum, to the church of Sardis, to the church of Ther. He knows the word. Why not use it again? Besides that, why are there 12 tribes listed here? What would those symbolize? If the sons of Israel symbolize the church, what do the tribes specifically symbolize? Are those denominations in the church? See, Christ in this passage is simply teaching that he will protect the tribes of Israel. And that's even if 
people today who identify as, as Jews don't know their lineage as those in the New Testament did. Now look at this idea of interpretation. When the method of interpretation in apocalyptic literature is, it doesn't mean what it says. When that is the way you interpret, really anything goes because your control has shifted from the author to the reader. I know this is somewhat technical, but try to stay with me. If it doesn't mean what it says, then there's no wonder that some people believe this passage is referring to 144,000 Jehovah Witness folks. Because it doesn't mean what it says. I read another wonderful godly preacher symbolize the winds of this text as false teaching in the church. And I think, where did that come from? It's not in the text. Another understood this passage to be about the church being invincible to apostasy. And I think, where is that? There are many more interpretations that set aside both the text and the context. Now, of course, I say all that to, to say many of those people do point to the text. For example, they point to this list of the 12 tribes, and they note the omissions. They note the order of the list, and they say it's all wrong. But I'll say this briefly. When we read the Scriptures throughout the year, we realize that these things happen all the time. We see these lists all the time. We see there are different orders in the lists all the time. We see omissions in the lists all the time. We see, and we're, we're not surprised that in this case, Dan is omitted. Some people believe that's because Dan was given over to apostasy in the time of the judges. But then we think about the time we read the book of Judges, and we think, who in the time of the judges didn't apostatize? Which tribe didn't turn after other gods? So the question, as we come back to a literal understanding of the text, is, is there a future for ethnic Israel? This text explicitly states it. The sealed servants of God are of Israel. And as readers of the Bible and as readers of Revelation, I think we expected that. Because God has made many, many promises to Israel, promises that cannot be fulfilled by replacing them with the church. Just think about that for a moment. Promise one child something and then give it to the other child and see if there's any disagreement right there. It doesn't work to make a promise and give it to someone else. Then read the book of Galatians and it confirms it. God can add recipients to a promise, but he cannot replace people he's made a promise to. He has to fulfill his word. And something that you can do in your study this afternoon is read through Isaiah 41 through 46. This is where God declares himself to be the one and only God, the holy God. And in declaring himself to be the one and only God, he stakes his identity on the fact that he will fulfill his promises to Israel. It's no small matter for God. As we read through the book of Revelation, I think we anticipate this. At the end of chapter 5, we saw that every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth would honor the Savior as they honor the Sovereign. And God is going to accomplish that by giving the Son, giving the Lamb the scroll. As the Lamb opens the scroll, all on earth recognize the Lamb and position Him with the one who is on the throne. At the end of chapter 6, we saw that. 
But there's one group of folks that really struggle to recognize the Messiah. Who's that? It's the group that rejected the Messiah. Christ came to them and they did not receive him, John 1 tells us. But then we get to Revelation 7, and there they are. Israel is numbered among those who will honor the Lamb. And there's more to that to come in the book. So it seems to fit. The Lamb will be honored. And we begin to see that theme develop through this book. Even Israel will honor the Lamb. So, the one last question I think we need to ask is, what about the other Israelites? Only 144,000 are mentioned. Is there any room for anyone else of Israel? What about Gentiles? Will they be sealed by God? Well, let me bring you back to point one, letter B. That's where I made a point, and I didn't give you the full picture. I say that because we saw back in the beginning of chapter 7 that the servants of God will be sealed. That is, they'll be protected from the harm that is to come on the earth and the sea that is caused by the angels restraining the wind. We saw that in point 1b. And we anticipate then that more judgment is coming. Okay? They're ready to harm the earth. We're expecting harm to come. And we read that there were seven seals, and we think seven means seven, so we anticipate another one's coming, and it comes. Look at that, chapter 8. And those seals end up being seven trumpet judgments. And would you believe it? The first of those judgments harms the earth. We anticipated that. That's what it says at the beginning of chapter 7. And the second impacts the sea. And even though nothing is said about the sealed, we believe they're protected because that's what we thought would happen. The harm to the earth and sea was delayed so they could be sealed, and then it comes, and we anticipate, well, they're protected from it. But what is striking, what we don't expect, is the cross-reference in your margin. Look in your Bible, Revelation 7.3, in the cross-reference. It says Revelation 9.4, and underline it. It says this, they, it's referring to the locust that came from the smoke of the bottomless pit, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. I say, that, that sounds great, because that judgment must be terrifying. Indeed, it will be. Yet there's something really different between chapter 9, verse 4, and the beginning of chapter 7. Because in chapter 7, the harm was supposed to be to the earth. And then when we turn to the next, to chapter 9, what we find is that the harm is not to the earth. It is stated it is not to the earth, but it's to people. And then we learn it is not to those who have the seal of the living God. And all we thought was that the seal would protect them from the angels with the wind. And now they're experiencing protection from other judgments. So we can safely say that the seal protects the servants of God from God's wrath in general. I think we can also say then that other Jews and Gentiles who aren't among the 144,000, but are servants of God, 
will likewise be protected. You see the reference to the literal 144,000 Jewish sealed servants of God stands as a representation of God's care that he affords to any of his servants during the time of his wrath. That's a great encouragement. People on earth at the end of chapter 6 were in despair at the wrath of God. What about the people who repent and believe the gospel, believe in Jesus Christ? Should they despair at the wrath of God that it will fall upon them? No. Because they've been sealed by God. It's because of God's care that they should not share in the world's despair. And that's exactly what the saints back in Asia Minor needed to hear. God is their refuge. He'll protect them. God is a refuge for his people in the day of his wrath. Nahum 1. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. No need to fear. God cares. Father, we pray that you will encourage us who indeed are not in those darkest of days, yet we do experience dark days for various reasons. And may we be certain of your orchestration of our lives and of your particular and individual care of us as your servants. May we never think that you don't care about us. You've forgotten about us. May we believe as we read a chapter like this that you do care, and that you are acting in accordance with your will for your glory. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.